Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back and relax, Mark. It's the Vet Gurus. It's the 23rd of November 2018 and we're excited, aren't we, Mark? We are excited because we are on the way, just about on the way to our conference, the UPAV conference, Unusual Pet and Avian Veterinarians conference in Adelaide commencing this weekend, Mark. Are you looking forward to it? I'm looking forward to it immensely, Brendan. You know, you know that um, I often report that you have con- conference to be like me going to my tribe. They're my people. I feel at home. I feel comfortable with all those people that go to UPAV. So it, um, as you say, it's a big, exciting week of uh, wonderful. Education. I didn't know what to say then. I was caught like with so many positive thoughts all flowing at once that <laughs> there was a dam. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. And we are planning on doing a few interviews, aren't we, Mark, of um, some eminent and maybe some not so eminent veterinarians <laughs> that we will put in future podcasts. So look forward to that. And I think we might do a, a few roving reports too, maybe through the trade display as well, Mark. I think that would be a good idea when we're there. So we should have a few little bit different podcast over the coming weeks um, regarding the conference. So, yes, it will be great, and that's on the whole week in Adelaide in Australia, South Australia. So that will be great, Mark. Um, before we jump into news and, and other stories in our main topic, Mark, I'd just like to say thanks to all those who sent their well wishes for my histopath results for my head, for my um, lump, my cyst, and it wasn't my brain that was taken out of my temple on my right-hand side. It was all good, Mark. It came back as a an apocrine hydrocystoma, benign little cysty structure, and uh, I went back for the sutures out with the plastic surgeon this week, so that was, that was all good, although I must say, my right-hand side of my temple, my face is as smooth as a baby's bum with the um, with the little facelift that um, she's done on that side, but my left side um, is a little bit wrinkled. So I'm going around with a quizzical look on my face, Mark. And I went to the shops today and everybody kept coming up to me and saying, are you all right? Have you got a question for me? And I think... My life has been, I must admit, my life has been a bit of a question mark my whole life and now you can see it on my face all the time, Mark. So um, perhaps she should have done the other side at the same time. Um, yeah, But um, no, all good. So I'm happy with that and I'm relaxed and I'm looking forward to the conference. So that's my news from this week, Mark. Do you have any other quick news items about what you've been up to this week? Well, you know, Brendan, I've only I've, I've been up to Tamworth. I've had the pleasure of uh, visiting our country music capital um, as the at uh, to attend the um, annual general meeting of the New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board. It was um, it's always important work, as we've said before, Brendan. But it, I don't know. I worry that um, there were some practitioners who showed up to the annual general meeting, and I just worry that maybe. I bored them to tears with the, you know, the audited financial statements and various motions and whatnot. So um, it was a, a good trip. I love Tamworth and it was good to do the AGM. I just hope that uh, we didn't put everyone to sleep up there. I know you travelled to some regional centres to do presentations, Brendan, and I sort of yes, was... but I'm sure you would have kept them... <laughs> Kept them amused with your boot scooting afterwards at the at, um, at the bar that you ended up kicking onto. I'm sure you would have done something like that, Mark. So don't you can't pull it over, pull the um, wool over my eyes, Mark. I'm sure you would have had fun. So yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, we were talk, talking off um, off air about the fact that you had to present some of the dry information from the from the group there and. Um, can be hard trying to keep people awake, can it, at times when you have to present a whole lot of important but 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 dry information to them. But it's all done, Mark, and now it's now it's all the fun stuff when we when we meet and go to the conference next week. So that will be great. Um, I think you should jump into the first news story, Mark. And what is the one you're going to choose first? Well, it's a sad story, Brendan. It's a genuinely sad story. This is from um, the Mother Nature Network, our, one of our favourite uh, resources, and um, 
it's talking about seasonal affective, dis- affective disorder, the uh, the the uh, um, condition where uh, the day length and maybe even the temperature and intensity of light um, in humans is known to lead to hormonal changes, which um, you know some people refer to as the winter blues. They um, the, the, there's a sluggishness, increased appetite, depression, social withdrawal, and in, in particularly in uh, susceptible individuals, um, the, the development of a high level of suicide, suicidal ideation. Um, so it's not a um, you know it's a serious problem. Um, the 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 way that it works is that um, the, those those effects, the day length, the light intensity. Um, it has an effect on um, the flow of melatonin, and melatonin in turn um, uh, re- indirectly affects a number of the neurotransmitters in the brain that um, that can you know, lead to the, uh, the 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 thought processes, the mental um, uh, framework of um, being sad, be, being um, unhappy, winter blues. And this article talks about whether pets are prone to the same condition. Now, I definitely can't say that I've seen it. Um, the argument is that um, having the same uh, structure, the, the anatomical structure, very similar anatomical structure of a brain, the same uh, patterns of neurotransmitters. We know we use um, uh, anti-anxiety drugs in our uh, dogs and cats. Um, is it likely that they have uh, the, the, you know, the same thing? And there is some evidence to suggest that they are... Um, moody in the winter months, Brendan, and maybe it is the same, uh, you know, the same process that's at play. Sad seasonal affective disorder. Do you think they deliberately spent a bit of time trying to work out um, the acronym, um, fitting it into the acronym there, Mark? I'm sure there was a workshop. I'm sure there was a workshop. That is a bit sad. So, so what things can be done? What does this article talk about into how to avoid sad in your pets? Well, it, it, the first thing it does talk about is that maybe there's some other, you know, uh, processes going on here. Maybe humans, you know, definitely are affected by seasonal affective disorder, but maybe their animals are are, are um are. Uh, going in, falling over in, you know, sharing the emotion. When people are down, the animals tend to um, follow suit, as it were. So it may not be precisely the same thing. But what the article suggests is that um, that there are some simple things that you can do. Uh, um, more indoor light, opening the curtains and shades to let in natural light, arranging um, the lights in the house so that uh, the day length is longer, Um Try and consider light that mimics sunlight, um, full-spectrum light boxes uh, that cover the electromagnetic spectrum from infrared to near ultraviolet um, and sit in front of the light for 30 to 60 minutes a day. Make sure um, that you enjoy indoor quality time with your pet. Make sure that you don't just uh, sit on the couch feeling a bit sad about the cold, wet weather and make sure that you... um, do something inside um, and certainly whack on a warm jacket and particularly on the sunny days in the winter, make sure you get out with your pet in daylight hours and uh, go for a walk or uh, um, play with the uh, ball in the yard. Um, All things that are likely to bust the blues both for the person and their animal, Brendan. Well... I'm a little bit annoyed, Mark. I'm a little <laughs> bit annoyed. I think these people shouldn't be having pets if they, <laughs> if they, if they, if we have to recommend to them that they sit and sit with their pet in front of a full spectrum light in order to un, uh, under. Uh, I don't know. You are. I'm, I'm, you're, I'm, you're more. Than I'm a bit annoyed. angry. <laughs> I'm a bit angry, Mark, about this one. Actually, yeah. So I'm not going to say anything more. I'm going to jump onto my first. <laughs> My first news story, Mark, and it's a it's a nice story. Mountain gorilla population rebounds. It's another another report from the Mother Nature Network, but it's a good news story, Mark, because there are now just more than one thousand mountain gorillas in the wild. And back in nineteen seventy eight, during the height of primatologist Diane Fossey's work with her great apes, 
in Rwanda, the mountain gorilla population headed towards the low point of around about 240 animals, Mark, and Fossey did fear that um, the species would be extinct by the year 2000. So over the last um, well, couple, few decades um, since then, um, they've jumped up to 1,000 mountain gorillas, and I think that's really good. It's a good news story because these they were listed as critically endangered and they've now gone down to the next level of just being endangered now. Still a long way to go, and um, I think um, I'm feeling a bit sad about them because I think as a species they, they're still going to struggle to survive, I think, long-term in the wild, aren't they, Mark? Um, but, yeah, going from 240-odd to 1,000, it is it is a good news story and it's a bit bit of positivity in the world, Mark, instead of a bit of sad news. So that's my quick first news story. Mountain gorilla populations have rebounded. Would you like to go and see them? You know, a few of my friends have uh, been over and done the, the tours up to... Absolutely, yeah, I would. Would you, Mark? At the drop of a hat. I'd be yeah. there quicker than you could... Um, do anything. Um, yes. the, 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 Brendan, I, these stories, now I'm going to get my cranky pants on. These, the, I worry about these stories quite a lot, uh, and notwithstanding that, you know, a, a fourfold jump in the population over the last four decades is a significant um, uh, improvement. We're not going in the wrong direction, thankfully, but still a population of a 1,000 animals, that's, you know, that's that's could easily be wiped out with, um, you know, those animals are particularly susceptible to uh, many of the viruses that uh, humans are susceptible to and just takes one, you know, the wrong influenza virus from the wrong part of the world and boom. So it could be you, Mark. It could be Mark <laughs> that wipes them out. You go in there to f- photograph them and um, you could be it. So perhaps, perhaps we shouldn't go and visit them. Or should we? That's the question. That's, um, I'll leave that with you. What's your second news story, Mark? <laughs> um, I'll just wear one of those masks, one of the face masks. That's what I'll do. Um, some elephants are evolving to lose their tusks, Brendan. Um, I, once, once again, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit um, uh, unsure, unsure of this story. So the story, the, f- the focus of the story is that um, uh, researchers have noticed that uh, al- almost all uh, male African elephants are tusked and uh, about something like um, uh, two or three percent of female elephants, un- well, you know, historically were not tusked. Um, but over the last few years, uh, the, um, the the number of uh, the, the, our current generation, um, basically any elephant under 24 years of age, um, if you take that cohort, about 32% of the females of that cohort are, um, are, are, ab- are absent of tusk. Um, and the theory... Tuskless. That's what those... Tuskless. That's what I was trying to say. Um, the theory is that, um, that hunting, hunting pressure... Um, on those animals that have the biggest tusks or the females that have tusks has allowed the gene um, that um, would appear to be uh, associated with the sex chromosome um, to form a greater proportion of uh, the um, uh, subsequent generations. Um, I, I hope, I don't know whether that's, once again, I don't know whether that's a clear conclusion to be drawn but um i suppose that sort of a jump from um something like two percent to 25 to 30 percent um that's a significant change you would you wouldn't think that's just a random variation um but also as well as uh maybe leading to um um, more elephants that are tuskless. Um, it changes the environment that the elephants live in, and the consequences of this uh, over the ensuing generations, the years to come, are largely unknown. Um, with because the elephants use the tusk to knock trees over to uh, to um, uh, get bark off trees, access certain foods. If they don't have those tusks, then um, then they're not doing those things nearly as much. They're feeding on different foods, um, and the 
animals that depend on the damage that elephants do to the bark or the trees, certain reptiles that live in um, in the knocked over trees, the the uh, way that water passes through the environment, that um, all those things change, and who knows what effect that's going to have on subsequent generations of elephants, Brendan? Yes, I, I think I feel the same with you about this story, whether or not the the science is in or out as far as um, whether that is an, a real effect there, Mark. Um, and they do mention in the article, quoting from the article, although our evidence for the role of genetics on tusk size is indirect, studies of mice, baboons and humans have similarly established that in size size, homologous to a tusk in elephants is heritable and has substantial genetic influence. So the basing part of that result and that, and I think it was over... To me, it didn't seem a particularly long period of time, did it, Mark? That 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 they um, that they've noticed uh, the um, tuskless um, um, pattern there. I think it was from the late nineteen sixties or seventies. I think wasn't it, Mark? That they were talking about in the article. It's hardly but, um, one or two generations for an elephant. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a little bit sceptical as you are, Mark, with it, but um, intrigued by it. I must admit, intrigued by it. And um, it leads on to my next story, which is making me even a little bit more annoyed, Mark, and that's um, 87 elephants have been found to be killed by poachers in Botswana. And the most recent census previously in 2014 found nine recently killed elephants and this year's survey 2018 which is only halfway through the actual complete survey has already found 87 um so that is um yeah it makes me a bit sad bit angry um and botswana's department of wildlife and national parks and this made me just annoyed um issued a statement saying that Elephants Without Borders which is the group that were doing the survey claims are false and misleading and then stating that it was only 53 that had died um, and most of them were potentially from natural causes. But, yeah, um, this is a, a really good report. I'd encourage our listeners to go to vetgurus.com and click on the link to it because it's one of those beautifully presented articles from National Geographic um, with some lovely lovely graphics there and some obviously beautiful pictures as well as elephants. Um mostly live on the ones that they've got the pictures up there. But, um, yeah, and they do debate or talk a little bit about some of the potential causes um, of the increase there. And one of the one of the um, thoughts was that um, the Botswana had a, a hunting ban in 2014 that was introduced and that they um, are considering that one of the possible reasons for the increase in, in the poaching is the actual introduction of that hunting ban. And another comment that they made in the article was about um, the disarming of the um, of the uh, rangers as well. Um, so the rangers were left to fight armed poachers without guns, and that uh, they made a decision to not um, not arm the um, arm the poachers. There, Mark, but um, you know, um, I think. Um, our friend Trump might um, be interested in helping arm them because um, a, a person unarmed is a person um, without a gun, isn't it, Mark, <laughs> that can't protect an elephant. So, yeah. Um, so I'm a bit angry and a bit annoyed about this one there, Mark. So even though we um, talk about the the tuskless um, potential um, future of elephants, um, which may decrease the chance of them being poached there. They're certainly still being poached. And the saddest part of that whole thing is they're still being poached for the same things that they have been poached for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that's obviously the ivory for the vast majority of it um, that are made into sculptures and figurines and chopsticks and jewellery and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I don't see it stopping, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so a bit of a sad one. Really sad, Brendan. Do you think I've, t- I've got two questions for you about this? Um, the first one is that um, I, while this is heartbreaking, I think it's a human problem. I think that um, poverty leads people to um, to see these animals as a resource. They can make a significant jump in their quality of life, um, and so they take the risk of you know going against the government or whatever to to feed the Chinese medicine herbal health. Um, 
China's traditional medicine uh, market. Um, I, I always think that um, that if we we had a more egalitarian society where um, where people were not in poverty, then they wouldn't see the need to um, to do these sorts of things. So I think it's a human problem. And the second thing that worries me is um, is the fact that it is uh, all to do with you know Chinese traditional medicine that um, that clearly is the biggest sink into which these um, uh, animals go. And geez, I do a lot to try and discredit that uh, particular treatment modality so these animals didn't have that problem. I saw a meme, Brendan, uh, online where people were, there were some parts, I think it was in Botswana, where they, both for rhinoceros and elephant tusks, they were staining them um, with dyes, with horrible coloured dyes. And uh, and I think that actually had an effect. We'll have to have a look and see because if there's something that could stop this, geez, it's got to be taken up more widely, hasn't it? Yes, yes. Well, in reply to your first sort of comment or thought there, Mark, I think my concern there is a lot of these will be highly organised criminal networks um, that are involved with this rather than the the poor local who's trying to trying to make a buck there. And I think with a lot of these um, um, trade in, in, in wildlife, for instance, it's um, highly organised and... Um, I don't know how we're going to stop it. Yeah, in the long run. Yeah, and same story with the with the um, going. Your comment about the Chinese medicine there, Mark. If that's where a lot of it ends up going, yeah, I, I think we've got zero chance of um, um, affecting the decrease in the um, thoughts that people have with with um, ivory helping with all sorts of medicinal. Um, properties that it may potentially have which it almost certainly doesn't have mark so i don't know what the solution is mark is my answer to that to both of your questions <laughs> there mark. Um, and it just makes me more depressed and more angry um and maybe we should get out and look at some um we should go and do some um sightseeing and f- photography of um some elephants when we head over to look at those mountain gorillas shouldn't we mark we'll have to get all the major species while we're over there brendan i reckon um and i worry because if we don't do it soon uh, we won't be able to do it except by you know wandering out to werribee or one of the open range zoos they won't be wild animals for us to photograph it brings a tear to my eye which leads me to uh, ask you about our main topic for this evening Yes, our main topic. Did you like that segment? Um, yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. I, I was going. I'm going to throw in a, a one minute review of a film, Mark. Oh, which I know you didn't realise I was going to say. Um, I watched a film. Um, one one in a series. It's a reboot, and um, it is called The Predator, 2018. So the reboot of the Predator series, and um, it was. It was a load of crap, Mark. I, I give it a t- two out of ten, a two out of ten, and I and I really like the original Predator movie, Predator One. I've seen them all, and I'm a bit of a sci-fi freak, as as um, as you well know. Um, but this was sci-fi uh, freak I, I, and an Arnie fan, and an Arnie fan, of course. Um, it was terrible, Mark, and they tried to make it uh, funny. Um, they tried to make it light-hearted, and um, it was an abomination. <laughs> two out of ten is what I give it. The two for a couple of good bits of um, CG in it, and um, the fact that we got to see a predator or two or three, actually, um, or more, actually. Um, but yeah, don't don't see it, Mark. And uh, I, I must admit, I didn't go to the movies to see it, and I'm glad I didn't go to the movies to see it. I just watched it at home. But it was um, ninety minutes of my life that I will not get back so that's my review mark the Which predator really 2018 because, because i like you really um have a, have a soft spot for the original movie it um it you know had the the um science fiction element the suspense the um the movie craft um it was it was a, a you know for that action uh, science fiction action movie it was an excellent example but the franchise has just gone downhill it sounds like it's hit rock bottom since then yes yes so 
Let us speak no more of the Predator 2018. And yes, your beautiful segue, which I've ruined now, our main topic, eye problems in unusual pets or exotic pets. So a little bit similar to what we've done with a few other general sort of systems or, or um, organs. We're going to talk about some of the eye problems that we see, some of the common eye problems and perhaps some of the less common eye conditions that we see in our unusual pets. And as usual, it will be in some random haphazard order, but um, we're going to go through a few of them, aren't we, Mark? Let's jump into a let's jump into one that um, I know you certainly see a few t- few times every year, or perhaps every every month, and perhaps every every week or two, and that's problems in our little froggies, our amphibian corneal lipid deposition. We do, I do and that's exactly one of the um, very common things we see, and particularly around this time as the uh, frogs are metabolically active, as the war- weather warms up, um, we do tend to see a few of them come in with uh, um, a, a white deposition within the cornea. Um, it doesn't seem to... Uh, play a huge role in obstructing their vision. They, they might uh, miss a few prey items as they go to have a bit of a feed, but they do tend to get on okay. Um, and So what, sorry, Mark, so what, what does it look like? So if a client rings up and said, my, my frog has something on its eye, it has a film on its eye, um, so what can you sort of, what are the hints you can give the practitioner who doesn't see many amphibians, how to differentiate this from, say, something like a corneal ulceration and, and um, how do we deal with it? Well, they're very good questions. The, um, the corneal also characteristically is painful and so the frog, you know, and when a frog has a painful eye, sort of when it's not painful, it, you know, it's big and bulges out. When it's painful, it gets drawn back in and uh, very often the eyelid is closed and there's often um, uh, um, lots of uh, vascular infiltration of the uh, cornea and definitely of the conjunctiva. Um, that, all those things don't happen with the, these, the frogs that have a, you know, whitish, whitish grey um, uh, sometimes it can be plaque-like, sometimes it can be in the very superficial layers of the cornea and so look like it's sitting on top of the cornea. Um, sometimes it can be um, more s- uh, within the central layers and so it uh, um, it looks like a, um, you know, the surface of the cornea hasn't changed. They're often centrally located rather than more peripherally um, and there's no redness, there's no inflammation and the frogs behave reasonably normally um there often is keys in the history too brendan it seems my experience is that the frogs that um that develop the uh cholesterol deposits in the eye that uh that are marked by that are the characteristic of these lipid keratopathies um those uh um, frogs often have had particularly uh, rich diets, um, maybe in terms of absolute volume, um, but often they've had uh, um, particularly fatty foodstuffs, uh, maybe even um, some pinkies. Some of the larger um, green tree frogs will uh, be able to swallow and consume uh, uh, prey as large as that. And, but they are the ones that we often see that have this problem if they've um, gone beyond uh, crickets and maybe some uh, wood roaches um, and their diet uh, is rich in those fats, then um, it does seem that they exceed their ability to process them and the cholesterol gets deposited in the in the uh, cornea with our frogs, Brendan. It's mainly, uh, it's a bit of a hard one to say, but um, I, I, I was just having a think about it when we were talking about our agenda tonight and um, I can... I, I've only ever seen it in the literature. I see quite a few of the uh, the Pac-Man frogs, the, um, the those uh, sort of amphibian mouths um, that are common pets in the uh, US, which have many mutations, um, and they regularly have very large prey, and um, and they are probably the most frequent sufferer of uh, this uh, sort of lesion. But um, in Australia. Um, and particularly in my practice, it's almost always the green tree frogs, uh, and I don't—I can't tell you whether that's because they're the most commonly kept ones, um, but I suspect there's a, a little bit of a susceptibility with that species too, Brendan. Yes, I agree completely there, Mark. And I—I uh, I always look at that diet, and for those ones where there's a really severe 
Um, Cornell Lipper deposition in them. Um, it's amazing how many of them. They're on a bit of a bit of a weird diet, and they're often, yeah, certainly overfed as well, and not just on the high fat ones, but the fed pumped full of these um, these um, these items. And I think I've mentioned to you before the the one that used to be at the zoo that I worked at that was called Jabba the Hut. It was so big, it was just massive. This frog um, because it was just overfed all the all the time because it was used for educational purposes. So it was fed every time it was brought out to um, be um, shown to the children. Um, so, what about preventing or treating it, Mark, and preventing it? We sort of hinted with, with, with the with the diet um, as far as prevention wise, treatment wise. I, I, they do talk about potentially putting them on the low low lipid or the low fat diet, but. But to be honest, I haven't had much success with that once it's once it's there. Um, I've had um, limited success with with um, it resolving with a, with a dietary change with the mark. Apart from potentially losing weight with the ones that are overweight, I have occasionally um, with the more severe ones where you have a massive build up there of the lipid. I have shaved off um, the sort of lipid deposit there, Mark, um, fairly carefully not to cause ulceration there have you have you tried anything like no, that no never been that game I, I would imagine because they do occur in slightly different presentations and there are i could i have seen some that i would have thought that's fairly superficial and maybe a little bit more discreet uh, plaque like and um it would be worth trying to take it out and then there's other ones where it's a uh, uh, hazier, more diffuse uh, deposition, and um, and I don't know that they're going to benefit too much. But the key thing I say to, to clients when they come in is that um, there's my in my experience there's literally nothing that we can do to change the current state once that cholesterol is deposited there. It's going to sit there forever, um, and there may be some you know uh, normal body uh, resorption that occurs, but. Um, but I can't tell you that I've ever been able to see any, Brendan. And the main objective of changing the diet, trying to remove those uh, relatively high-fat, high-energy components um, of animals like Jabba the Hutt, um, then uh, is, is mainly meant to control and uh, limit the progress of uh, the deposition and um, have it stay. Yes. It so I am... Um, I, I, so Probably let's jump on to it. I agree yep. entirely with you. Do you see, I was going to ask you quickly, while we're talking about frogs, quick and punchy, what yes. about some uh, uh, burns, uh, uh, um, you know, sometimes with the lights? Have you seen cases like that? Yes, yes, yes. So um, not just thermal burns, but UV yes. burns. Um with, with them. So I think we need to be a little bit careful. I know we really push the UV lighting in all our little pet species or all our, all our living things, don't we, Mark? But um, I think we have to be a little bit careful with our amphibians and making sure that, one, they're not getting too close to those those UV lights and we're not using the high-output UV lights because we can end up with those UV burns with them and they can be pretty nasty because then, um, you know, not only can you get those, you can get everything from retinal-type burns but also to the development of of our skin cancers with them as well. And by the sound of ears, you've certainly seen these. Definitely. They're, they're, and it's the, the key thing I suggest to people is stick with the name brands that um, that uh, it's all, it always seems to be the discussion um, when we find one of these uh, frogs and sometimes turtles that have um, uh, um, corneal uh, burns, corneal ulcers associated with uh, um, burning of the epidermis, um, that they... Um, that they've gone for some cheap brand. They were at the pet store and the, the new pet store owner pointed out that they just got this wonderful, exactly the same as the name brand, but only a quarter the price. And uh, and I, I I dare dare I say it, Brendan, they weren't exactly the same as the name brand. So um, that would be our main tip. Stick with uh, the, uh, the the brands that have, that have been in the market for quite a while, but we don't have too many problems with those guys. Yes, yes. Let's jump on to some eye problems of some other species, Mark. Let's talk about rats and mice. So what's this thing about red tears, Mark? So it's a common common condition that people ring up about. You know, um, I, I, I love to hear you pronounce things, Brendan. Can you give that a crack? Chromodacaria. <laughs> Excellent. I, you, 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 I can't even tell that you've been practising. 
I I'd say I'd say that um, at least weekly, Mark Chromo Daiquiria. Um, in my sounds practice. like a drink. You should be. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had one at the moment. I must uh, must admit, Mark. Yeah. So tell me about red tears in rats and mice. So do you? Um, it's a very common thing for us to see, uh, particularly rats, but um, uh, also our mice. To when they are in stressful situations, um, the, the their clients will bring them in and go, "Oh, they've been." fighting there's been some social interaction at a new introduction or one of them's um not well and and look they're bleeding from their eyes brendan do you get the bleeding from the eyes routine yes yes my uh, my rat is bleeding from its eyes it's bleeding from its nose it's bleeding from its little front legs because it's a stressed rat and it has the red tears from the porphyrins and so it overgrooms itself and it's wiping away those red tears so it ends up with the red pigment on its nose and on its front feet as well so yeah um, they rush them into the clinic yeah so what's the treatment for it then Mark? well the treatment is to um solve the underlying stress that um uh, there's nothing you know it's a a part of the rabbit's uh, rat or mouse's uh, normal response to a stressful situation to increase the secretion of um, those porphyrins, and um, and so uh, treating the underlying stress is the most important thing. Um, and uh, sometimes that can be hard, but um, that's the way to get the problem solved. Is how do you tell the difference, Brendan? Let's say you had a a um uh, a rat that um uh, that the the client was adamant that they knew the difference between um, uh, the stress-associated uh, porphyrin and they their rat had um, that was actually blood this time. How would you tell the difference? How would I tell the difference, Mark? Great question, of course, as usual. <laughs> yes, because we're differentiating blood from porphyrins and it's obvious, it's simple and it's easy, but unfortunately a lot of technicians, vet nurses and veterinarians um, forget that all you need to do is grab a little sample of it and look under the microscope. And if it has red blood cells in there, then obviously it probably is blood. And if we don't see that, then it isn't blood. That's the That's exactly what I was getting at, um, uh, if there is any question. And sometimes you, you like, oh, there have been times when uh, I myself have looked and gone, ah, oh, it doesn't look the typical um, uh, appearance of that porphyrin dribbling down the face. It looks a bit different. So let's just get a um, tiny swab, wipe um, a little bit of that red stuff off, put it on a slide and have it look under the microscope. And once we did find one that had red cells, but almost invariably it's uh, absent of cells. It's cellless and um, acellular and uh, um, it's the stress-related um Chromodacryorrhea. Yes, and it is an important one because we see it so frequently. And, and as we go through these random and not so random conditions of unusual pets, just remembering that we see most of the common sort of problems we see in any species with all of these species. So we will see corneal ulceration in our rats and mice, for instance, as we do see it in our amphibians and rabbits and guinea pigs and rats and mice. And and ferrets and, and other species, but we're just going to touch on some of the ones that we see frequently and some of the more interesting ones, Mark. And one of the ones I'd like to jump over to, Mark, is our uh, guinea yes. pig one. And that's one that I see probably every, I don't know, probably every couple of months or so. And this will be a client who who brings a little piggy in and says he he's, he's, he has a surprised look on his face. His, his, his eyes are very bright and white and he has a bit of a ring around his, um, his eyeballs there. And this is the, the classic condition that we see in guinea pigs called osseous metaplasia. And it's exactly that sort of bony type metaplasia of the um, around the edge of the, of the um, periphery of the anterior chamber there, Mark, around the um, around the um, near the white of the eye there, and and it's a real classic, amazing look. And once you see one of them, you you won't miss it in the future there. And I call it the the ring of the the, the ring of um, the ring of fire. I call <laughs> it in. In in um in the little guinea pigs because it's so so obvious. Not that it looks red. It's often sort of a whitey, um, 
um, bony type um, coloration, isn't it? Well, it's um, interesting that, that I've, it, um, it, it, you, I've heard you talk about this at conferences before, and I've gone, well, there's something that, uh, you know, I obviously have been stupid and not been looking at, and Brendan's been diagnosing these cases. But when I look at our guinea pigs now, I can't say that we see too many uh, examples of osseous metaplasia. Um, so I don't know whether there's a... a, uh, um, a you know, it's something I'm on the lookout for now, but um, I don't know whether there's a genetic difference or whether it's just a chance um, that we're not seeing them. But um, I can't tell you I've, I have that much experience with the condition. Ah, in- interesting. Maybe it's a yeah, a regional, a regional thing. Maybe our guinea pigs have fed something that's causing it. Um, because we don't, I don't think there's 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 any proven cause of um, this particular conditioning guinea pigs um, there's a, a few theories and I'm trying to remember what what all those theories are but yeah I I must admit I do see it um, I wouldn't say regularly but I certainly see it every several several times a year mark and and sometimes I'm seeing you know two or three in a month um, with the mark so maybe there is some sort of genetic link there perhaps our listeners, who have seen it can send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com and um, mention how many times you've seen it in guinea pigs. So, so that's a guinea pig specific, specific one, Mark, osseous metaplasia. There's another guinea pig one that's probably more commonly seen and and um, it's down on the list there, Mark. Have, have you seen many of those? Um, you're, of course, uh, talking about um, chlamydia, uh, chlamydia or chlamydophila. I think it's chlamydia. Um, no, no, it has. It's chlamydophila KBI, um, but it has a very similar um, uh, uh, appearance um, and uh, clinical behaviour to chlamydia cytosai in birds, um, causing a, a significant conjunctivitis. Um, yes, we do see it uh, quite regularly, um, so it's uh, something that we do always keep a lookout for. Um, do you it, it what do you do, use to treat it, Brendan? Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. I was going to ask you. So, um, um, well, I suppose going back one step, how do we diagnose it? So that these this would be the if we haven't done a proper diagnostic workup with them, these would be the guinea pig with the chronic conjunctivitis that isn't responding to traditional therapy, which would be. I'm not talking about Chinese therapy there, Mark. It would be traditional therapy like our, our, our um, chloramphenicol eye ointments. It would be time um, with them. It would be bathe in the eye. Um, so the ideal would be would be doing a, a swab of that conjunctiva there and um, sending it off not just for culture and sensitivity but sending it off for the chlamydia testing as well and getting that def- um, definitive diagnosis so and if it came back as a positive there then um, probably what I'd tend to put them on and I'd be interested in see what you you would be doing Mark would be um, I'd be adding doxycycline um, with them um, and I'm trying to think there is one other treatment but I've just gone blank with what what you can add so what do you well, put them on, Mark? It's hardly a surprise that I do the same as you, and and it's easy for me because we have lots of um, doxycycline floating around a hospital that um, that sees lots of birds. But azithromycin is the um, is the other um, macrolide antibiotic that um, that is reported to treat this. Um, we we we've only just recently added that to our. Uh, list of stocked antibiotics and so i'll be interested to give it a crack um and see whether it uh um, because I, I do worry that um that i don't seem to get the same results with doxycycline in guinea pigs as i do with uh, uh the doxycycline in birds um uh, yeah i just don't know that i'm getting the yes. same response yes well i look forward to your little in-house study and reporting back on that one, Mark. Let's jump quickly into and punchily into some rabbit eye problems, Mark. Let's run through a couple of the conditions that we we see in rabbits. That are, a couple of these are very rabbit-specific, aren't they, Mark? So perhaps if you take the first one, which is, again, another a nice, you like, um, <laughs> you like pronouncing these um, names. So what Faco-clastic is it? Phagoclastic uveitis, Brendan. Phagoclastic uveitis. Yes, and what do they look like when you well, see them? Um, they look like they've got uveitis. They look um, uh, 
angry. They look, um, they've got a, a mass in the anterior chamber. They often look um, like there's a, you know, because many of the people who would be treating these cases would be familiar with the casiest nature of rabbit pus, um, it, the, the, uh, the white cell response inside the eye to the reaction does give it a little bit of a, oh, it could be a um, um, pus in the anterior chamber, a hypopion. Um, and um, so, yeah, uh, uh, they're, they're, uh, they can be a little bit frustrating cases to identify. Yes, and so, yeah, a floaty bit in the anterior <laughs> chamber is what I tend to say. They have a bit of a classic um, a classic appearance, don't they, Mark? I suppose the other differential with those is, is um, lymphoma sometimes um, can show up as a as a bit of a similar-looking mass there, but the vast majority that I certainly see as a phacoclastic uveitis and, and the underlying cause of that is our... Our little parasite encephalitisoan canicula EC mark is the, is a classic cause of that, and and for those of you who can't remember back to their studies on on this particular condition in rabbits, it it sits there in utero, um, and it destabilizes the lens capsule of the rabbit there, so it's sitting there, and this rabbit that is popped out from mum um, is sitting there with a little lens capsule that's unstable and it's ready to blow at some stage and, and develop this phacoclastic uveitis. Um, you can send off the whole globe of these ones if you end up removing that eye um, and um, if you send it to a decent pathologist they will come back with confirming that it is a, a caniculi causing this condition. Um, they're quite difficult to treat these. Um, it's really just trying to treat it as a uveitis and fairly aggressively their mark is what we tend to do both topical and, and putting them on um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as well. I tend not to go with um, um, cortisone-based drugs with these. I know there are some some um, rabbit veterinarians who do use cortisone and, and prednisolone-type products for this particular condition, Mark. I don't know whether you have, but I'm always very leery about using um, cortisones or corticosteroids in rabbits, so I tend not to do that. Um, and a lot of them, um, I end up removing the eye if I can't get it under control there, Mark. What do you end up doing? It's precisely the same. I'm a bit of a, a corticosteroid weenie myself in these cases, and um, and I do avoid using them. I worry that I set off more problems um, than I solve when I use those drugs. But I know there are, um, as you mentioned, a number of uh, vets with an interest in rabbits who um, uh, seem to use them without the trouble um, I expect when I would be tempted to use them. So... Um, I, I wouldn't want to judge anyone, but I don't use the corticosteroids, and uh, and they do. And I have read some cases where um, there's been attempts to uh, take the lens out. Um, but um, and Brendan, I've got this is an interesting thing that I just I learnt a new thing this week. Did you know? Did you know that um, rabbits can grow a new lens if you take the lens uh, out of the lens capsule in a rabbit. Um, they grow a new lens. No, I didn't know. And this that. is the reason that you shouldn't put, um, you know, artificial lenses in when you do uh, um, uh, lens removals in rabbits. <laughs> but we, but I've never had one where we. I've read about it, but I've never had one where we have taken the lens out. All my cases have ended up uh, being enucleations, and uh, and I think that uh, that um, it's not a bad outcome for the, the rabbit. Fake. Yeah, the phaco emulsification, yes, um, and then sucking it all out, so breaking it all up and sucking all of that out. Um, what other conditions do we see with our rabbits, with our eye well, there's issues, Mark? The, the, probably the most common one that uh, um, that I see, and I often see them as referral cases uh, where there's um, uh, some uh, treatment applied to the eye and it's just not getting better, but the eye is bulging out a little bit more and maybe the uh, uh, the tear duct is becoming blocked and there's a discharge and um, and very often uh, dental abscesses within the skull that access the retrobulbar space end up being the cause, Brendan. We see this very, very often. Do you see these sorts of cases at all? Absolutely. And the difficulty we treat in these 
retrobulbarabscess slash dental ones are, what do you do if you remove that eye? Because you often still have that abscess at the back of the eye from those tooth roots pushing through those premolars. And do you close that over? Do you leave it open? Do you pack the the orbit with with antibiotic impregnated beads or antibiotic soaked um, gauze swabs and then um, close it over and I've done all of these things over over the years Mark and I haven't hit on a one technique that works um, better than or, or very well at all um, um, for any of the rabbits Mark so I've, I've often I typically give them a really poor prognosis these um, retrobulbar abscesses even if we do remove the eye and um, and try and suck out most of that abscess and attack those teeth that are causing the issues because we've got this remembering rabbits have a really big orbit uh, as a percentage of the skull there so a really big um, eye socket there so we've got a big deficit there to deal with so i need your can we regrow an eye mark like we can regrow um, um our little um, lenses in the rabbits what do you well, do exactly with the same as you brendan i uh, um have tried all those treatment modalities and um and certainly you'll buy yourself some uh some time um but i, I can't like you i can't point to anyone that's led to uh um, a resolution of the problem, and um, and it does seem that anatomy behind the eye, uh, the anatomy within the skull in that vicinity, um, makes it very difficult for us to extract all that uh, osteomyelitis that leads to the retrobulbar abscess, and and we regularly end up in the same boat at some stage down the track. Yes, so they're very frustrating, and um, hopefully, maybe someday, some some smart person will come up with a solution for these. But I, I don't think we're going to get to that. The other, the other eye condition I think we should mention before we jump on another species, Mark, is the the thymoma that we see in in rabbits, and this is a bit of a rabbit specific sign that we see, isn't it, Mark? And this is the bulgy. This is the the rabbit that has the eyes that look like they're popping out, so the bilateral. Bupthalmus. Um, so these eyes are looking bulging. They're about to pop out of the eye, uh, pop out of the head, and, and you need to put thymoma on the list of the differentials for these um, these bulgy eye rabbits, don't we, Mark? And and the the theory behind that, Mark, I, I think, unless things have changed, is that it's the changes in the the vascular sort of um, structures and and the blood pressure etc causing the, the bulging of the eyes um because of that thymoma in the chest cavity um do you see many of these mark or is it like the um is it like our guinea pigs with our osseous metaplasia we no no this is one where well do you, how often do you see them brendan Fairly rarely, but um, I think less than two or three a year. Yeah, I, I'd I think about the same. We probably see two or three a year. They're um, reportedly rare tumours, but um, um, we definitely see a good steady clip of them, two or three a year, and uh, and they do. They they're quite um, striking, um, like your guinea pigs with their uh, white eyes. They they come in and um, they uh, they look like someone's stuck something in, in a place that it shouldn't go and left it there and their eyes are bulging out of their heads. And uh, and it does, it's one of those things that leads you to look uh, at that area, at the eye, um, at the head, think about um, abscessation, uh, retrobulbar abscesses, but the actual pathologies in the chest and uh, and you have to have your mind alert to that direction for further investigation. Yes, Guess what? I agree totally <laughs> again with your summation there, Mark. So let's jump on to some birdie things. We haven't spoken about a birds, Mark. So do you want to talk about a couple of bird conditions that relate to the eye that you see commonly in your practice? Or perhaps no, no, I do see uh, things uh, associated with the eyes of birds very commonly. And, um, and I suppose one that uh, I'm keen to talk about is um, is uh, a condition that affects the tissue around the eye, the eyelids and the the uh, bare tissue about the eye, and that's nematocoptes, the famous scaly face mite, um, and uh, and we still see that surprisingly regularly. Now, clients will regularly get onto their uh, onto Doctor Google or uh, one of their old um, Budgerigar textbooks and uh, and start to apply some paraffin oil to the area in an attempt to drown the mites. Um, that 
doesn't work all that well, Brendan, and just ends up leaving a bird that has a uh, horrible, crusty appearance around its eye and all the feathers around it are stuck in oil. Um, so we see these birds come in. They often have extensive areas of honeycomb-like um, uh, hyperkeratosis and uh, and um, it will break it. Uh, the birds can often have such large um, keratotic uh masses that um, they can't see they'll often not eat very well um, they can't blink their eyes properly um, and so they really are suffering they they often have immune suppression as is the case with most external parasites that um, get to have this sort of an effect the birds often have some form of immune suppression and a lot of the birds will have um, underlying reproductive tumours or something like that that set them off. Uh, but a fair proportion of them have just had um, a window of opportunity, a relatively short period of time where there's a, a physiological stress, maybe the introduction of a new bird, and that suppressed their immune system temporarily and the mites take off. And, and by the time you see them, that problem could be all resolved, the original stress. And so they are well worth treating. But I always say to clients that they need to be aware that once we get it under control, there may be some underlying problem that's uh, allowed it to take off, Brendan. So two comments there, Mark. What is your standard treatment for them? And secondly, do you think that, um, following on from what you said, do you think a fair percentage of, of these birds will just have the mites in low numbers in apparently healthy, normal birds? And, and um, if somebody did a bit of, survey, bit of a survey, has there a survey been done of normal birds to see whether or not they have those that parasite in low numbers? I don't, not that I'm aware of. And I would think that um, there's, a, there's a couple of case situations where I think that, um, that the mite actually has a decent amount of pathogenicity um, that it can cause disease in, in only very modestly immune-suppressed patients. Um, so I, I know of no, um, uh, unlike. So no chance of it being a commensal I, at all I, or equivalent? I, I, I mean. think it only plays a, a pathologic role, yeah. Um, and our standard treatment is one of the abomectins applied topically to the lesions using a, um, a, a, one of the insulin syringes. Um, we uh, calculate a dose, uh, measure it out, uh, dilute it and um, apply it to the area. We only need to do that generally um, two, maybe three times. It's a very, very effective treatment. Excellent. And what was the other bird eye condition? Well, leading on from um, uh, Chlamydophila cavii, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about um, chlamydiosis, probably the most common uh, eye disease we see, um, often referred to as uh, doxycycline responsive conjunctivitis in many cockatiels. Um, and, uh, um, and it would be, uh, while chlamydia cytosci can cause many uh, disease syndromes, and so um, we might see a splenitis and a systemic illness in some birds. We might see predominantly an air sacculitis in other birds. Um, it very regularly, particularly in cockatiels, but in many species, will cause a, um, a significant conjunctivitis, even to the point of a chemosis. Um, and uh, and those birds are very responsive to doxycycline. Um, it's often one-sided, which um, um, given chlamydia's tendency to cause systemic illness, um, it always is a little bit of a, um, you know, uh, furphy. Well, you may, may not think of chlamydia immediately when you see um, one of these birds that has um, a sore, uh, severe conjunctivitis in one eye, but, um, but it is very commonly the case. So because you see this very commonly, what is your diagnosis a treatment trial with the majority of these cases or do you do you work them up and get a definitive diagnosis? We really work hard to try and get a definitive diagnosis because it's a zoonosis um, and uh, and if there we regularly have clients who have family members or themselves who uh, maybe um, have an exist they have um, had it diagnosed they've been to the doctor and had it diagnosed and now they're uh, suspicious of that being the reason their bird has a problem or they 
very commonly don't. They have a, a severe cold that's not going away. Um, and so getting a specific, as specific a diagnosis as possible is often a very important uh, um, part of um, the epidemiology, um, trying to make sure that the whole family and the bird is treated. Um, so we will um, use our uh, immunocomb, um, even though we know that test hasn't been um, scientifically validated, um, it's still a very useful test. Um, uh, we will do DNA samples on some birds. Um, chlamydia is one of those diseases that it's very difficult to be categorical about a diagnosis. And so we are often talking about two or three diagnostic tests to uh, give us the index of suspicion sufficiently to, um, to uh, qualify as a diagnosis. And we've talked in previous podcasts about the American CDC website, which uh, does talk about those um, tests and the number of them, the levels of them that are required to get a diagnosis. Yes, and the CDC has some fantastic summaries, don't they, of um, diseases and not just the, not just the, um, I was going to say not just the zoonotic diseases, but they mostly are the zoonotic diseases, aren't they? Um, that's oh, it's, a, um, it's an excellent scientific resource, so Trump will probably shut it down pretty quickly. <laughs> well, let's jump onto a couple of other species and leave the politics alone there, Mark. <laughs> and uh, reptiles, gee, we haven't covered eye conditions in reptiles. I suppose the main thing I would like to say there is we see so much of the the abnormal shedding, the dissectisis um, conditions in them. So remembering that our, our snake friends have a nice scale there. So if we have an abnormal shed and they don't manage to remove that eye scale, that spectacle, we can end up with a, a snake that has multiple eye spectacles that have been retained there. So, um, and vice versa. Sometimes we may only have one eye spectacle there, and an inexperienced veterinarian or or owner may think that they're removing a one retained eye spectacle, and they're actually trying to desperately remove the cornea um, and causing more harm than they should there. But um, dissectiasis and eye conditions in in reptiles is not uncommon, especially for with our snakes my my usual recommendation for the, these ones with the snakes mark with an obvious retained spectacle or spectacles is to go slow i tell the clients look we don't need to remove that eye scale today if it doesn't come off today don't panic and i show them a method of using soaked cotton balls um, with warm water usually is all i, I recommend gently holding them over the eye, over the orbit there um, for several minutes to try and soften that spectacle and then um, trying to gently rub it rather than trying to pull it off with a pair of forceps or tweezers, but to gently rub it and see if it's managing to, to peel away there. And if it is, great. If it isn't, then try again the next day or, or that um, afternoon or that morning um, of the next day. So take their time and, and go slow with them. Unless the eyes obviously looking um, abnormal, um, I think we can, we can um, spend a bit of time and take our time and, and manage to do it um, quite well um, without trying to rush and, and cause more damage, Mark. Do you have any sort of other tips with the standard retained spectacles? Well, I think in, in that, uh, that you've hit the nail on the head that this is one of those conditions where slow and steady wins the race. That, um, uh, And I've had a couple of cases where, uh, where we've done exactly as you suggested. Uh, we've recommended that our clients um, uh, apply a a hot compress to the affected eye um, and uh, and give it a few days. And those clients have kept doing that, you know, they haven't returned for their progress exam and they've kept doing it until the the, uh, the python in question has had its next shed and almost invariably the, the next shed with the extra moisture and the suppleness of the retained spectacle um, even if they leave it that long, the generally the the retained spectacle is um, is taken off, uh, is removed with the sub the, the next spectacle to go, and everything returns to normal. So I think patience is a virtue with those ones. I think magnification, getting um, some uh, surgical loop and identifying the little frilly edge. If you are going to use forceps and try and remove um, the uh, the retained spectacle. If you can't see that frilly edge, then I don't think trying to grab anything 
um, is a very wise idea. Um, so, yes, exactly, Mark. Don't grab anything unless you <laughs> see the frilly edge. I think that's the take-home message for this week, Mark, isn't it? Um, and remembering, I find um, that I always recommend looking for mites with these reptiles. So a, a dissectosis, an abnormal shed in a reptile, it's often a result of a mite infestation. So always have that in the back of your mind as well with these with these reptiles with the abnormal shed um were there any that we sort of well we've missed lots and lots of conditions and eye eye problems that we see in our unusual pets mark so it's a bit it's almost enough for us to return to it again another time brendan i think so mark i think so um and i think we need to go and pack mark for our little conference we need to get out of here and um get ready to do a few recordings on the road and get our little intro man to do his outro and we're out of here and we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.